0: Up, here's your receipt, the first legal receipt awesome. issued in Canada. I feel great. So those are scenes from Canada's recent legalization of cannabis. But in the UK, it remains illegal. Though a couple of cannabis-based drugs like Epidiolex have been approved for certain conditions such as Dravet syndrome. I came across Selen, a UK startup who are bringing personalised medical cannabis to UK patients. Of course, you need a prescription to access it, but I was really curious to find out more. So I spoke to Dr. Benjamin Vieri de Lisegna, who is a French-trained NHS doctor, as well as the co-founder and CMO of CELEN. He's a really cool guy and the first half of our conversation is a rough guide to medical cannabis in the UK, so I'll hopefully answer some of your questions from a clinical perspective. The second half is more focused towards Benjamin's advice for doctorpreneurs, including why 45 is the ideal age to found your startup. So I started off by asking Benjamin to give a lay of the land and cover where we're at with medical cannabis in the UK.
1: Cannabis has been in the lives of humans for thousands of years. There's many historians that are talking about instances where cannabis was used more than 3,000 years ago. And there, I've seen several times, quoted the fact that actually Queen Elizabeth was prescribed cannabis for her period cramps. So cannabis has been used whether for religious purposes or medicinal purposes or recreational purposes for a very long time. Cannabis became illegal in the UK in 1928, and cannabis was added as an addendum to the Dangerous Drugs Act of 1920, and that's what made the use of cannabis illegal. Uh, When the Misuse of Drugs Act was created in 1971, Then cannabis was put as a class B drug and therefore an illegal drug as well. There was a change in the legislation in 2018 where under popular demand, cannabis was rescheduled from a Schedule 1 to a Schedule 2 drugs. So Schedule 1 are the illegal drugs that have no benefit for health and Schedule 2 drugs are the drugs that may have a benefit for health and are uh, controlled drugs. Since then, patient advocates and patients around the UK thought that that would be an easy access to medical cannabis, but that's not the case. Um, The reason why there was so much demand to change the scheduling of medical cannabis was because there was the examples of different countries. And for example, Israel has been providing medical cannabis to its patients since since the mid-1990s. And there, everybody knows about the great change in the legislation in Canada where uh, medical cannabis was legal since the mid-2010s, but recreational cannabis was made legal in 2018. So that's the global landscape of where we are. Right now, medical cannabis is available as a Schedule 2 controlled drug. There are some licensed drugs, and there is a market also for unlicensed drugs. The licensed drugs are all licensed by GW Pharma, and the ones that everybody knows are Sativex and Epidiolex. Sativex has an indication in spasticity in multiple sclerosis, and Epidiolex has an indication for epilepsy in Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, and uh, that's mainly the landscape for licensed drugs. Many people are looking for medical cannabis for other diseases and therefore are relying on unlicensed drugs. Uh, If you look at what is available in the UK, the majority of unlicensed medical cannabis products are final products that are imported from either Israel or Australia or North America mainly.
0: So I guess the next question is in terms of at least the uk why now like what's happened recently that's made um so much i guess interest and so much availability in medical cannabis
1: so in the uk there was a lot of popular attention to, the, to two particular cases two children that have refractory epilepsy uh, billy coldwell and alfie dingley have been very present in the media and very vocal. uh, Their families have been very vocal in the media about the fact that none of the drugs, none of the anti-epileptic drugs are working on their children and that they know that CBD was helping them greatly. To give you a little bit of understanding, uh, Epidiolex is a CBD uh, medication that has been licensed by GW for Lennox-Gastaut and Dravet syndrome, as we've said earlier. And uh, those children that have those diseases can have uh, up to a hundred epileptic seizures a day. And Mm. when they're treated with CBD, it can go as low as 10 seizures a month, making a complete difference in their life. And those two families, the Caldwells and the Declins, have been very vocal to make sure that people understand that medical cannabis can make an enormous difference in the lives of their children. And they have procured medication from outside of the UK. The the Dingley family moved to Holland to be able to get treatment in La Hague uh, for their their child, but at one point they decided to come back to the UK and they brought back that knowledge with them. So under the pressure of patient groups, the health secretary at the time decided to review the position of the states regarding medical cannabis and this is what led to the change in the legislation
0: well okay and you mentioned cbd and i was wondering if you could give a kind of like an introductory guide to the different types of uh, cannabis uh, products so i know there's obviously street cannabis um there's cbd kind of oils you get from um, like holland and barracks and then there's also these prescription medications so like how does it can you kind of explain all of that? Like what, what are these different products?
1: Of course, of course. So I think most of the people know about illegal cannabis. It can come in different forms, whether it is flour or resin or any other um, form that you can, you can buy in the street. And we have to be really understood that this should absolutely not be used. There is no control over quality. There is no control over manufacturing. The resin can contain a lot of things that are extremely harmful to anyone. And, and uh, I really want to emphasize that this is not medical cannabis and this should, be, should not be used for self-medication. Absolutely not. The second one you mentioned was CBD oil as a food supplement. So there is a consumer CBD oil industry that is providing through different um, high street shops uh, CBD oil as a food supplement. The level of quality is very different than the one that you obtain in medical cannabis. Uh, this, This is oil that can be obtained through hemp that has by law a level of THC that is less than 0.2%. And uh, there, this consumer CBD oil market is right now booming. There is more and more brands in the UK. The UK is the biggest consumer of consumer CBD food supplement per capita in Europe and therefore, we hear and see it everywhere. But because the level of detail in the manufacturing and the, actually the requirements regarding the manufacturing is completely different, I wouldn't use this for self-medication in the case of patients that have an actual medical need. It is true that uh, a lot of people are using it because it is much cheaper to obtain than medical cannabis when you have to buy medical cannabis um, in the private market when it's not prescribed and provided by the NHS. Uh, But if you have a condition like epilepsy, you want to make sure that every time you take a drop of that oil, you get the exact same concentration of active ingredient in each drop and that from one bottle to another, you will have exactly the same um, active ingredient in one bottle and the other, which is not the way the supply chain for consumers' CBD oil as a food supplement is designed. And finally, which is the area where I work, there is medical cannabis. And medical cannabis is it's very different than the one we've, we've talked about before. There is a great deal of attention to the supply chain, so all the flowers are grown in a very controlled manner, so that there's as low variability as possible between one flower and the other, and a lot of control of the uh, components within the flower, the active components. There is also a lot of uh, control in the manufacturing process, the distribution process, and that makes it that you have as low a viability between one product and the other as possible. And this is the main point that is the most important. If you have a very debilitating disease, you need to be able to rely on the product that you're using so that it actually improves your life and your way of life. And you won't be questioning whether or not this month you'll have a bottle that will be efficient or not. And that is why the industry for medical cannabis is designed in a very different way than the two ones we've talked about
0: before. So you've mentioned the two cases, uh, like the two high profile cases of epilepsy in the UK, Um, but I'm curious about what are the other kind of clinical needs for medicinal cannabis? Um, either, you know, what's what's currently, what currently can we uh, prescribe it for or give it for, and what could the future hold as well?
1: So, NICE published NICE guideline on cannabis-based medicinal products in November 2019. So that was almost exactly day for day, a year after the change in the legislation. And they've looked at where there is sufficient data to be able to recommend prescription of medical cannabis. So NICE looked at different pathologies. The one where they found that there was a clinical benefit was intractable nausea and vomiting, especially in the context of chemotherapy, spasticity and the treatment for um, refractory epilepsy. They also looked at the indications in chronic pain and they found several studies that showed An improvement of chronic pain with medical cannabis, but NICE uh, has established that there is a lack of sufficient quality data to be able to uh, claim that there is an indication in chronic pain. It doesn't mean that it's not used in chronic pain. There is many prescribers that are using it in chronic pain for patients with an unmet clinical need. Because if you have tried every medication available that are licensed under the UK law, then you can try an off-label medication or you can try an unlicensed medication. And this is where a lot of prescriptions are done
0: currently. Can you explain how CELN works and how, so say you're a NHS doctor and you see a patient who could benefit from medicinal cannabis. What, I mean, how, how exactly would it work? Is it something the patient has to access themselves or is it something that you can prescribe through the NHS? Like, How does that all work?
1: So you can access medical cannabis on the NHS because they are licensed medicine and they are available in most trusts formulary, you would be able to access Epidiolex or Sativex through pretty much every doctor in England. That's the benefit of having licensed medicine. The problem arises when uh, you do not have access to licensed medicine because you have another indication than the one those drugs are licensed for. And then you could, you could. There is a many cases where you would get that medication as an off-label medication. You could be benefiting from Epidiolex or Satifex as an off-label medication. It becomes much more complicated when you have an unmet clinical need, where your prescriber thinks that there could that where medical cannabis could be beneficial, and where uh, the light there is no licensed medicine or an off-label use of, li- of a licensed medicine is not uh, indicated. That's when you turn to the unlicensed uh, medical cannabis uh, market. It doesn't mean that the criteria for manufacturing are different. It's The criteria for manufacturing are the same when you have a licensed and an unlicensed medicine. It's just that it didn't go through phase one, phase two, phase three to Prove that there is a a licensed indication for that medicine. That's what unlicensed medical cannabis means. If you have a patient where you think that this patient has an unmet clinical need and that this patient needs an unlicensed cannabis-based medical product, the main way that the prescribers are doing it right now is through the private system because it is extremely complicated for any NHS trust to validate uh, the indication of an unlicensed cannabis-based medical products. So patients turn to the private prescribers, and the private prescribers are using an FP10CD form, which is the normal NHS form, that well not NHS, but it's the normal form that you're using to prescribe privately controlled drugs. And so in our case, we have patients and doctors that have contacted us. We have sent to those doctors our uh, information leaflets to explain to them what would be the process if they wanted to prescribe any unlicensed cannabis-based medical product and making sure that they have the proper prescription forms and tell them how a prescription would look like and then where to send that prescription. And pretty much, we have a partner pharmacy that receives all those prescription and delivers those medication to the, to the patients in the next seventy two hours.
0: If you want to use uh, medical cannabis for a licensed use, it would be just like prescribing another medication within the hospital. Um, but if you want to use an unlicensed use, then you go through this, and you one of the ways you could do it is go through selling and uh, like the method you described. Is that, is that right? Exactly. Exactly. Can you tell me a little bit about then what it's been like founding and running Selen? Like what challenges you've come across, how you've overcome them? Because it sounds like a kind of industry that would be quite difficult to kind of, I guess, navigate and get people on board with. Like what, what kind of challenges have you had?
1: So I think healthcare is one of the industries where the level of regulation is the highest. I would I would say pharmaceutical in general, healthcare in general, must be one of the industries. The only industry that I can think of that may have an even bigger level of regulation is building firearms. It is it is incredible the amount of red tape that exists, and that you have to go through to be able to to do that. And I mean red tape with the utmost respect, because it is absolutely, absolutely necessary to me, to make sure that you're providing high-quality product and that you're protecting patients. But it is still a very difficult industry to enter. And um, that was one of the many obstacles that we had to meet. It's the fact that there's a lot of difficulties in navigating the regulatory landscape, Because it's not a single set of regulations. You have the Home Office, you have the MHRA, you have NHS England, you have the Department of Health, you have many, many regulatory agencies, governmental bodies that are involved and that sometimes have conflicting information. And that makes this industry a very tough nut to crack.
0: Do you notice that being in medical cannabis... When you're looking to either recruit people onto the team or whether you're looking for investors or whatever, just looking to get people involved. Do you find that medical cannabis is something that's like, you know, like in quotes, sexy and it's easier to do it? Or do you think it's something that's harder and people view it as almost like taboo?
1: I think you have both sides of the same coin. I think you have certain people who are extremely excited and some of them have expectations or a priori's or any form of preconceived notions of what medical cannabis is or cannabis in general, you will see a lot of people who are advocates for uh, deregulation, for a a lot of aspects of cannabis which are not medical cannabis. You will have a lot of people who are purely interested in in it because it's a brand new chemical compound and that are just excited by the possibilities of a new chemical compound, you have people who are very much afraid of it because of all the social taboo that has been associated with it for so many years, you have people who are afraid because, not because of the social taboo, but just because they recognize that it's a control drugs so it's one of the highest level of regulation within one of the industries that already has one of the highest level of regulation so it creates so many barriers at so many levels like you can see literally the entire spectrum of 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 people it's really interesting
0: along the way as a as a doctorpreneur so as um, a doctor who's become an entrepreneur what like what have you learned and like what bits of wisdom and stuff can you share about, you know, in the founding and running of selling?: So,
1: I love to quote a very interesting study uh, done by the Harvard Business Review, which looks at what is the age at which an entrepreneur creating his company is the most successful. And I, I will share with you a link that you can include in the description. And the result of that study shows that the average age of a successful startup founder is 45. 45. If you think about the common knowledge around successful entrepreneurs, everybody is quoting Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, guys who were barely in their 25, 30 years who created incredible unicorns and like there is very much so a narrative that is actually not reflected in the data and i have seen many medics try to think of of the best moment for them to go and create their startup as being right after medical school like i've just done my last year i'm at the top of my game in terms of knowledge in the medical world. I know a little bit of everything and I have a great understanding of how the medical system works. I am young. I am full of energy. I need to create my startup right now. I am not sure that this is actually the best moment for you. I think you need to look at what you really want to do and acquire an even deeper understanding in that particular field. If you look at a software company, and if you're thinking about a, an app or a platform or whatever, maybe go do a little bit of computer science. Or maybe go work as a junior doctor and have an incredible emphasis on what are the tools that are that NHS Trust are actually using. Because having a little bit of knowledge may not be enough to make a difference. And that's why the average age of successful startup founder is 45, is that you need a deep knowledge of your industry before you can actually service that industry in the right way. And it's, 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 I think that is something that is not said enough. I have seen many aspiring entrepreneurs who are like, oh, I'm a junior doctor. I don't want to see patient in the future. So there's no point for me acquiring a deeper knowledge in cardiology. That's a, a, a loss of my time. Well, actually, not really. Being a junior doctor in cardiology is not going to be helpful if what you want to do is create a startup that is not related to cardiology. But if what you're really, really motivated about is imagery and you're thinking about MRI of the heart or ultrasound of the heart or anything, being a full-fledged cardiologist will make an entire world of difference for funding, when you're talking to investors, for approaching the NHS in the future and any regulatory agency, this will give you an incredible edge. If you've actually worked within that industry, it will give you you an incredible edge. So yeah, if you're a junior doctor and what you want to to work on is the application of AI in healthcare, of course there's no reason for you to become a GP and do a full like junior years to become a GP, no. Go do a PhD in AI. That's what will make you so much more competitive.
0: That's really interesting because it's the first time, um, I guess, I've heard this perspective. But I guess my kind of counterpoint to that, and I'd be curious about your thoughts on this, would be, I guess, the time issue. Because I guess as a consultant, you've got raising a family maybe, you've been training for so long, so you're probably just tired as well. And you've got loads of other commitments, mortgage, etc. But when you're young, you've got, you can potentially have almost no accountability to anyone apart from yourself. So I don't know, do you not think that it's a massive challenge starting something later in your life?
1: I think it is. And I'm living every day through that challenge. I have two kids under the age of four, I, which means that my nights are not that awesome. I have been working full time <laughs> as a consultant during the first 18 months of our company, which means as an obs that I had multiple uh, night shifts a month. Uh, I was doing all my lists, my theater lists, my consultation lists. I w- was working 40 hours a week for the NHS, then 40 hours a week for my company, then having quite a demanding personal life which means that I recognize it. I have not seen my friends much because at the end of the day, when I had a little bit of time, I was spending it with my family. And I agree with you. There is, it's, it's a very different set of challenges, but actually as you become older, you save a lot of time. I definitely had a much better understanding of the regulatory network and the, 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 the regulatory landscape and I had a much broader network to help me with, and that has saved a lot of time for me as well. I had knowledge, industry knowledge, that would not be available to a uh, last year medical student, and an understanding of patient relationship that would definitely not be the one that a junior doctor has, and that has created a lot of differences. Even for funding, it has helped me a lot. When you come and you talk to investors and you say, this is what I've been doing and I am now an NHS consultant, I have worked in that industry, I know it like the back of my hand, I have also worked in health tech during all those years, so I have more than 15 years of experience in the medical field and more more than 10 years of experience in the health tech field, that creates opportunities that you would not have as a junior doctor.
0: That's really interesting, yeah. So I guess I guess your advice would be then to spend more time in kind of the learning and information gathering mode and maybe specialize more before branching out and doing your thing.
1: Exactly. And a lot of people are saying, I've got this great idea and now is the time. A lot of people put too much emphasis on the idea. Great ideas in the health tech field come all the time all the time as long as you're you have a little bit of understanding of the health tech field you will have great ideas the problem is execution and execution relies on a deep deep understanding of the industry
0: so talk me through you know you have um this idea with your co-founders and like what's how do you translate that into something real like what how do you do like what's your advice for that how do you do that
1: Oh, that's a very broad question. So first of all, you need to have you need to have the right team. I do believe, and that that's a personal belief, that doing a startup on your own is extremely difficult. You need to have a sounding board and having a great co-founder is really important. And I'm very lucky Eric is a great co-founder. But your co-founder is not your only sounding board. You need to have friends mentors, colleagues that you can talk to. I always call my old colleagues from different trusts I've worked with and have small conversations with them. What do you think of this? What do you think of that? Even though they don't know much about medical cannabis, that is really important. And I think that would be the first step. The second step is being extremely well organized, because if you're working on a startup, it is very easy to go in multiple directions. You need to be focused, you need to have timelines, you need to be organized, and that is one of the most important things that you need to do in order to actually deliver. And finally, you need to have a balanced life. I think for me, the only reason why I've been able to do all those things is because I have a very balanced life. I'm blessed with a wonderful wife and kids. And that has given me really uh, an escape boat. Like sometimes you're just sinking because you have so many problems in your, in your company and you, you feel like you've hit a wall, but then you just take a day off. You just spend some time with your family and, and it helps you. Being all consumed inside your company will literally kill you. Like I, there, there has been so many stressful moments during this, during this company that if I didn't have my family, I would be lost. I would have been lost, definitely.
0: Awesome. And have there been any books or resources that have helped you along the way?
1: So, uh, you, you told me you, you would ask me this question, and that's that, that's really interesting because <laughs> I've, I've, I've thought about it, and there's, there's many, many. Many books that I that I can quote, but I think they would. Those are always the same ones. I see, I think the Lean Startup by Eric Ries is the one that everyone thinks or reads. There's the Innovators Dilemma uh, by Clayton Christensen. Again, anywhere you go and you ask entrepreneurs, they will talk to you about that. If you want something a little bit easier to read, you can read The Four Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. I read that when I was in my 20s and I was like, oh my God, this guy has understood everything. And then you just realize that really there's a great lack of depth inside this book. But I think the one book that maybe not everyone has read or that you don't hear about all the time would be a book that was written by Richard Thaler, who's a behavioral economist. He is the recipient of the... Nobel Prize of Economy in 2017. He's an incredible author, he's an incredible mind, and he wrote a book called Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth and Happiness, which is not too difficult to read, which is all about the revolution that behavioral economics have made around the world. And if you look at the applications, of behavioral economics in all the different a- aspects of life, you will realize that actually it can help you run your life better. It can help you negotiate better in your professional life. I, to me, it is it is it is a well of information for how to run your life on many different levels.
0: What's one message you would want to get out to your clinicians or prescribers Um, about medical cannabis what's the one kind of take-home point
1: so to answer your question i think there's one point that clinicians need to be focusing on when they think about medical cannabis is that you need to think of it in the same way as you do for any other medication you need to follow all the right guidelines and everything that you've trained before like It is not a magical drug, it is not something that is going to solve every problem. There are so many grandiose titles on the media about curing cancer, helping against COVID-19, there's so many things. But you need to continue to keep a very scientific eye to all of that. And you need to think about the fact that it should be seen as the way you look at any other drug it has side effects it has clear indications it 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 has it needs to be of the best quality that's what matters the most
0: i hope you enjoyed that episode you can find benjamin and selen at selenhealth.com and you can find all of my stuff by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk thank you